Welcome to the Seattle Public Library's podcasts of author readings and library events, a series of readings, performances, lectures, and discussions. Library podcasts are brought to you by the Seattle Public Library and Foundation. To learn more about our programs and podcasts, visit our website at www.spl.org. To learn how you can help the Library Foundation support the Seattle Public Library, go to foundation.spl.org. Good evening. I'm Chris Higashi, Program Manager of the Washington Center for the Book at the Seattle Public Library. Welcome to tonight's event. It's a great pleasure for us to welcome Azar Nafisi. So first we thank the Seattle Times, our author series sponsor, Gary Kunis, and finally the Seattle Public Library Foundation's thousands of donors. So thank you very much for that. And now just uh, turn things over to Rick Simmons, and thank you. Thank you, Chris, and thank you very much for being here tonight. We are um, thrilled to have Azar Nafisi back. It's been, I guess, 11 years since the first one, yes. When uh, at the basement of Elliott Bay, which actually features in the beginning of her new book, uh, she came very early in the life of her extraordinary book, Reading Lolita in Tehran. Um, you, she has this um, instigating, um, rousing capacity to um, make you take take notice of what she's talking about in terms of uh, of books and the books she's written and the books she's writing about, and that's um, coming from someone who is um, both a dedicated, passionate teacher, um, but also um, it's rooted in the, the seemingly contrary activity of reading books. Um, the book she's here with tonight is a, a, a compelling, moving, marvelous book called The Republic of Imagination, America in Three Books, a book in which um, she uses the work of Carson McCullers and James Baldwin and Mark Twain, Huck Finn. Yes, I know. I was like, we were just talking about the new edition. I was like, but uh, three very signature different writers in this country, and yet let's draw some connections between them. But even more, um, the place that such work has in, in this country and in the need and to continue to uh, live with imaginative literature, to, to um, go with the places where such work takes us. Um, she certainly got such a response from reading the Lita in Tehran, and this book is, is somewhat prompted by the responses she got, which were partly one thing, you know, sort of thinking about how things were in Iran, which are, which are certainly, as she depicted them, not great. But to the, sometimes the sense of taking things for granted here, uh, we often don't exercise what things we have and should do. And she does this um, to great um, effect. In fact, talk about the Mark Twain, she, there's a new edition of Huck Finn that uh, has a forward by her. But she's also in this same capacity, um, not only keeping writing about books that are published here, you know, written here, alive, but she's also been um, a great presence in helping bring more books from other places in the world to, uh, to print and in this country, and no, notably uh, Iran, such Iranian books, uh, which we have on the table there, um, My Uncle Napoleon, a, a, a very funny con contemporary Iranian novel, as well as uh, classic works such as Shahnameh and, um, and a new translation by Dick Davis of the, great, of the poems of the great poet Hafez um, that she's been supportive of. So um, all of these are um, testament to um, her ongoing 
mission and, and passion, and you'll get to hear more of it. Um, so Azar will talk uh, about what's, and, and give, a, give a talk on uh, Republic of Imagination and what's in it. And welcome him back to Seattle, the remarkable Azar Nafisi. Thank you so much. It is such an absolute pleasure to be in this city one more time. Going to what I'm supposed to be talking about, which is the Republic of Imagination, people ask me, um, what is the Republic of Imagination? You know, it's a, a very, uh, the name itself can bring so many things uh, to your mind. And I say, well, each one of us has a different Republic of Imagination. I mean, uh, the act of reading is both a very private act, but at the same time, it all constantly needs to be communicated. So it is con con simultaneously private and, and public. But um, tonight, I can tell you, if anybody asks me, where is the Republic of Imagination, I say, here. This is the Republic of Imagination. And, and, and especially the union of the library and the bookstore, you know, what more can you want, you know? Um, but uh, how, the way I feel about um, libraries and bookstores, and uh, as well as museums, any place where imagination is in one way or another housed, is that they are also the most democratic spaces that we can find, you know, um, uh, because Republic of Imagination has the writers who write and, and the publishers who, you know, um, sometimes publish good books and, um, and, and of course, um, uh, the ones uh, who read. Um, but the point about it is that uh, one aspect of it is the books themselves. And when you go to the bookshelves and, 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 and look at all these books, that are living in peace and harmony on these shelves, regardless of where they come from. We don't say, oh, this book is from Syria, we're not going to be reading it, you know. Um, all of those that in real life are right now, all these countries and nations that in real life are fighting one another. Um, uh, Nazar Qabani, one of the most sensual poets you would ever read, who's a Syrian poet, is side by side with a man who lived several centuries before in Italy called Dante, with a woman who lived in 19th century um, England called Jane Austen, with a man called Rumi, with a woman called Emily Dickinson. You know, you can go on and on. And when you come to a place like this, nobody says, are you a Republican or a Democrat, you know? Um, what is your opinion? Do you watch Fox or do you watch MSNBC? You know, so, so this is genuinely the most democratic space. And then as for the readers, um, I know that we have become very politically correct in this country, and I think that imagination is anti any form of correctness, the, including the political one. Um, but the whole idea of, of, of readers is that there are communities of readers who transcend again um, the boundaries of um, geography, nationality, religion, ethnicity, gender, race, or, or class. Uh, readers come from all sorts of places, 
and, and, and the whole idea of Republic of Imagination uh, is the fact that um, uh, it is based on two of the most important uh, human attributes, one of which is, of course, curiosity. Um, you know, and, 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 and I believe, I, I have, uh, you know, uh, I believe that maybe some scientists also believe that since the dawn of man, um, this idea of curiosity has been with us because we can't survive without it. We can't survive. Um, you imagine even us living in this civilized world, there's so many things that we don't know. So the urge to know the urge to know the world, the urge to know the others, and the urge to know yourself is part of our survival as human beings. A part of it is scientific. You know, the first man who um, uh, created fire, you know. And, 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 and part of it is the desire to make things yours, to make things familiar by giving them names, so you go to Greek mythology and Roman mythology or any mythology in any country, and you see that part of the telling of the story is trying to control the world over which you have no control, is trying to give shape, make concrete things that are unknown. And, and, and the fact that uh, when you go to religion from Torah to Bible to, to Quran to all the religious, to uh, Buddha, uh, the religious texts also need to make things concrete. Uh, even God, of course, God for a long time was this um, sort of um, very good-looking old man with uh, very white beard. Uh, now his image has changed a little bit, you know. But um, uh, the, the idea of God again, you have to give it uh, him, her, it, whatever, um, a sort of um, uh, concrete uh, expression. So I, I feel that st uh, stories um, uh, or what I would like to call imaginative knowledge uh, is not something that you have today and then tomorrow technology comes and you say, we don't need it anymore. We don't need to read books, we don't need to tell stories uh, because we can take selfies or, you know, um, write in our iPad. You can take selfies and write in your iPad, but you still, you know, are curious and, 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 and you're curious, and like what our um, uh, champions of education nowadays talk about, I, I would call them anti-champions, but that's another story. You know, people, people um, want to get excited, and, and, and that is why um, they want to be provoked. They, they, through stories, they, found, they find the ambiguities and the complexities and the paradoxes things that reality does not allow us much. You have to transcend the limitations of reality. And the second thing, um, right alongside of um, uh, curiosity, obviously, is empathy. And not the kind of empathy that people are talking about nowadays, you know, um, I feel your pain, or, or don't say nasty things about others, you'll get into trouble. So the whole idea of empathy, as the narrator in To Kill a Mockingbird talked about, is all about um, uh, getting under someone's skin. 
And, and that is why I think that novel is, um, the great novels, um, bad novels, um, usually the, the writer tries to impose his own mindset on all the characters and shuts them up. But great novels, one of the most important attributes of the great novels is the fact that um, they have to be multivocal. They have to give voice to every single character, including the villain. You know, uh, from, from Jane Austen to, um, I don't know, Ian McEwan, whoever you like to read, whoever is your favorite uh, writer, um, uh, and of course, the great mystery tales. I myself, I'm a, Ch I'm a Chandler person, uh, and, and um, I finally forced my editor to accept me, to accept one page on Chandler in my Twain chapter, you know. Um, but you read a great mystery. There as well, you see that everyone, including the villain, has to be believable. Either, uh, otherwise, readers would not accept you. They won't buy it. Of course, nowadays, uh, in the world where we constantly, you know, reality has become so shallow that right now, in fact, we need fiction. Because look at it. I mean, it used to be branding of merchandise. Now we brand human beings. I mean, politicians market themselves, and then people on CNN and other news channels don't notice how weird it is when they say so-and-so has to rebrand himself in order to win the elections. For heaven's sake, I mean, why are we voting for people who are rebranding themselves, you know? And, and, but, but this whole idea of marketing has now reached the idea of being human. And of course, uh, Kim Kardashian is a figment of our imagination. I mean, you know, to, to be a human being based on nothingness, it, it, it is a figment. It is a figment. And, and, and what is worse is that from Michelle Obama to Obama to Kim Kardashian to Angelina Jolie, um, uh, to everybody, they are all celebrities now. That is what we call them. We call them celebs. You know, no, he's the president. I don't want him to be good looking. I want him to be the president. I don't want her to be a fashion icon. I want her to be a great first lady. That is where the praise comes for these people. I like Angelina Jolie because she's a good actress. These people have names. They do things. They have a profession we know them by. But now they're all celebrities. And in, in um, uh, you know, um, White House correspondence dinner uh, used to be a very heavy affair. You know, Tom Broker and people, uh, you know, would like, would names like that would come. Nowadays, Justin Bieber goes and, and the governors queue up to ask for his autograph. You know, I mean, this triviality that we take was one of the subjects of my book, one of the things that really uh, uh, bothered me. Uh, so the way I felt then about this Republic of Imagination was, first, it doesn't have any borders. Second, it is about curiosity. Third, it is about empathy. Fourth, it is about complexity and ambiguity and paradox in everyone's life. And fifth, um, it is the guardian of memory. 
because, you know, each moment, it's not that we all die, but each moment dies, you know. And who guards those moments? Who is it that against the absoluteness of death and fickleness of life stands up and, and, and gives us these moments? Because novel, much of poetry, they are not about great people doing great things. They're not about supermen and superwomen. They are about ordinary moments of life and making us understand how extraordinary they are. You know, you fall in love throughout the ages, and each time a great love story seems new to you. You know, so these moments of being human, what Vladimir Nabokov used to call conclusive evidence that we have lived, it comes to us when we go to the museum. It comes to us when we listen to Mozart or to Jimi Hendrix. It comes to us when we read a great novel or a, go to a great play or see a great film. And I think that that memory is so important in the age that we live in where memory is sort of being wiped out, you know, where um, everything we watch on our Google and then we forget, you know. That, 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 that sort of um, uh, cuts your connection to time cuts your connection to, to the past, and therefore it makes it very difficult to both live in the present constructively and connect to the future. Okay, so um, the, the, the other point, um, there are three stages for my Republic of Imagination. One is the way I wanted to describe it. The second part was how did I become uh, so enamored of the, what is my Republic of Imagination? And I just wanted to say a few words about it before going to the main story here. Um, uh, I, I, I mentioned in the book, I most probably have mentioned it in my memoir, um, that um, my father um, would tell my brother and I stories ever since we were very, very young kids. I mean, as soon as I came to consciousness at the age of three or three and a half, he would start telling me stories and bedtime stories. And he was very democratic in the telling of his stories. Um, Persia, uh, Persia is very rich um, both in stories and in its poetry, so I got a great deal of that. Um, uh, Rick mentioned Dick Davis, who is one of the greatest translators of um, beautiful, the most important works of Persian poetry and, and uh, stories. Uh, so I would hear them. Um, our great epic poet Ferdowsi, uh, who wrote a thousand years ago about um, mythology of Iran, um, the pre-Islamic uh, mythology, uh, you know, coming until um, 18, 11th century. Anyway, uh, but the next day, my father and I would go to Italy with Pinocchio. You know, the next day we would go to France with the little prince. The next day we would go to Denmark with Hans Christian Andersen. Next day we would go to England with Alice in Wonderland and, and we'll come to America uh, with the Wizard of Oz or with Charlotte's Web, you know, and, and, and later on Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn and, you know, all the rest of them. So I had from my childhood a sort of a map, an imaginary map, of the world, and I had gone to these countries before I actually went to them. I wanted to end with Baldwin because this is the most important thing today, not to become like your enemy. They swear at you, you don't swear back. 
they fight you with ignorance, you don't fight back with ignorance. You create your own domain. And that is why we need books. Thank you for your patience. Thank you. Thank you so much. I also wanted to ask you something. Um, there's this amazing intern I have who followed me from Nashville grumbling that your social media is really a mess. You don't have one. And he has created one for me, and he wants people who are interested in following what we're doing to sign with their emails or go on my website, whatever. You know, uh, I, I feel really ashamed saying it, but he brought these things to, to the door uh, before I left. Uh, so this is for Michael. And <laughs> uh, now we have asked, uh, do we have time for questions? Uh, please, um, not questions, comments as well. Please say something, otherwise I think that you really did go to sleep and it makes me feel terrible on a night like this. Yes, sir. Well, first of all, I, <clears throat> I'm, I'm in love with a good story. You know, and, and, and I don't care if people think that uh, that is not highbrow enough. You know, Dickens didn't write for academics, nor did Jane Austen, nor did even Shakespeare. Um, but with mystery, I, I, I feel that mis the good mystery stories, and especially the American mystery stories, are very moral, in fact. You notice, I mention in my book, how uh, in America, the heroes are homeless and moneyless, the power in them comes from the fact that they despise and ignore both money and power. And, and Marlowe um, in, in Chandler uh, is exactly that way. They call him a gumshoe, the, the, his rich um, clients. But in the end, it is that small gumshoe, like Huck Finn again, the outcast. It is the gumshoe, the homeless, restless gumshoe, who is going to solve the murder. And, and, and the whole idea of mystery reminds me of what a story is all about. You know, um, we go into the story being curious, and stories are almost always about life and death. Um, I love uh, Chandler because he starts paying attention not to the plot, who done it, but to the minds of the victims and of the characters and making them complex. Uh, I mean, uh, I'm sorry, I can go on forever about mystery, but um, I hope that is enough. A lot of mysteries nowadays, I think they have become too formulaic. I don't like mystery writers based on a formula. They bore me, and I usually leave them alone. Right now, Tana French from Ireland and Ian Rankin from Scotland. Uh, I, I like those two very much. This lady, this lady, this lady. Uh, the difference between morality and political correctness. Well, political correctness is something that someone else is imposing on you, telling you not to do it, for example. You know? uh, coming from uh, Iran, which everybody calls a Muslim country, that in itself is problematic when we call everybody a Muslim world, as if these countries do not have their own specific names. You know, it's like calling France and England and America um, the Christian world, you know. Um, so, so political correctness creates a sense of guilt in you 
so that you would, an, or, or punishment in you, which makes you not to say something or not to do something. When you're dealing with Huck, you know, Huck is amazing. He's not really impulsive or instinctive the way he's been portrayed. Notice that after, before making any big decision, he says, I had a think. He has a big think. He reflects. He doesn't take anyone's word at their face value, you know. And, and even with Tom, I, I think Tom is the villain of that story. That is what I'm saying in my book anyway. And um, Huck, Huck gets, he gets it that Tom is a fake. And he says all that talk Tom had was uh, Sunday school talk. You know, it wasn't real. So morality should come both out of your mind and your heart. You have to think about it. And, and, and you have to have a feeling that you're doing the right thing. So there's a lot of complexities in it uh, that is not, doesn't exist in political correctness. You know, when they insult us women, and then they come and say, apologize. If people have insulted me many times for being all sorts of things, I never want those people to apologize to me because I don't believe them. And because I'm not going to be hurt by an ignoramus idiot, you know, who is far less than I am. I feel that I am in the position of power as a woman, not he. You know, so these are some of the issues. But I would love to know what you, you think, actually. Mark Twain says about Huck Finn, it's a book about the conflict between a sound heart and a deformed conscience in which the heart wins. For him, social conscience that comes out of Sunday school and conformity is in fact a deformed kind of conscience. And the heart stands up to that. That is American individualism to me. You know, not the kind that uh, you know, we're facing today. Okay, um, there was this. I mean, how old is he? This age? Maybe some of, uh, he likes watching films and screens. Well, that, but that's one of the challenges. And of course, you know, uh, also children have such different aptitudes. They might not like reading, but they might be great um, listening to music. Or, 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 I think one form of imagination, at least, is, is is important. But also connecting what he likes to do to the books. Sometimes, you know, like Harry Potter created such amazing uh, influence among children. I think that might help, you know. But um, he'll find his way. Yes. That's a very short one. Um, I remember some of the 24 Melville's Confidence Man, um, Nathaniel West's um, The Day of the Locust. Um, I don't remember the name of the Don Powell one. Hemingway's For Whom the Bell Tolls, because at that time I was going to. Um, F Faulkner's As I Lay Dying. Um, Zora Neale Hurston's um, um, Their Eyes Are Watching God. Uh, you know, these are some of the few. Uh, and I was thinking of Saul Bellow. I didn't know if he... I wanted to find a novel before the 60s because I wasn't going beyond that. Okay, so... Yes. She was asking about the power of your works to make people cry, and were you aware of that, or are you aware of that when you're writing? Power, no. First of all, I'm very critical of myself. 
I kept my editor waiting. Um, we had the contract for this book um, uh, in 2005, and I refused to give the book to her until it got to threats and things like, Azad, if you don't give me this book, you know. <laughs> so, uh, no, I'm not aware of the power because I think the only thing you should be aware of is the act of writing and writing well. Um, that is the only thing. Then things happen. It's like your children. You don't know what things will happen. <laughs> this child is only a week old, so we'll see. Oh, don't get me started on that. Well, Rick mentioned the Persians, so I leave them uh, aside. Um, uh, the, uh, he was asking about um, uh, books other than American books um, that, that I love. Um, the British, I love Dickens. I love, um, obviously, Austin, whom I have talked about. Um, um, I love, uh, God, I love Bronte. I like Julian Barnes, Ian McEwan. Uh, some of the mystery writers whom I really now uh, don't remember. The French, um, uh, Flaubert, Stendhal, uh, Balzac's um, uh, com human comedy. Um, the Italians, um, Italo Sevevo's Confessions of Zeno, um, um, Alberto Moravia, uh, Natalia Ginsburg, um, the Russians, I love all the Russians, all of them, <laughs> especially Chekhov and Gogol and Nabokov and Tolstoy and, uh, you know, the, the Bulgakov, Master and Margarita, um, the Turks, Aziz Nassim, um, and uh, Yashar Kemal. I won't talk about Orhan, we all know about him. Um, these are some of them. The last one was this. Tell me if what I'm saying is correct about what you said. Um, I talked about my anger when I was becoming an American, right? And you wanted to know um, how that process is taking me, whether I'm still angry going towards the vi violence. I think there's some generic aspect to, to being in that phase of anger, you know, for someone to become, to take on a, a, a new citizenship. And um, so of being a part versus being part of a society, of, be, of uh, integrating, connecting to a culture. I just wanted to hear more about your specific experience. Was it through reading, through experiencing American literature, which is what you're focusing on, or was it something in your life experience that led to this positive um, and productive way of um, becoming an American? Uh, well, okay, um, there are certain things that made me angry, they still do, but I tried not to either write or act upon my anger. I think that uh, it is the most um, dangerous thing to do because um, uh, you need to digest it and you need to internalize it and you need to understand that from the dawn of humanity so much violence has happened and so much violence is happening. Um, and, and, and also I think of the fact that no fight is going to um, endure or to, um, I, I don't know, we might not win, but would be worth fighting without hope. I don't mean optimism. Uh, Vaclav Havel in my introduction has a great... Uh, um, definition of hope, which means the potential for change, you know, and, and that is what I rely on, and, and one of the best things that have happened to me in my life coming to this country actually has been going around the country through, through my book. 
I've been to 33 states, red and blue, small towns, big towns, and it has always been, always, an amazing experience when you talk to people, you know. And I love the idea that it would be grassroots because every change in this country has come from the grassroots. Uh, and I see Martin Luther King's monument in Washington now. No women, by the way. No monuments to women in Washington. Um, and I think we should not only look at the stone, keep the monument, we should not forget the dream. And, and, and I think people who have created these monuments are people capable of change. That's what gives me hope in this country, you know. We should start with hope, always. Thank you so much. Okay, on that note, that's a wonderful note to end on. Thank you very much. This podcast was presented by the Seattle Public Library and Foundation and made possible by your contributions to the Seattle Public Library Foundation. Thanks for listening.